You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, it's great to see you this morning. Hope you're doing well. Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to be, so if you want to grab your Bible, go ahead and flip there. Uh, that would be great. And so it's a longer passage, so it's going to really be helpful for you to have that open and on your lap where you can read along with us this morning. So Mark chapter 4. Uh, as you're turning there, let me preface by saying a couple of things to kind of lead us into this text. The Bible is primarily a book of one point. It's got one central primary message. And if you want to sum it up in a word, you could say Jesus. That, that the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus. It's always about Jesus, and it's all about Jesus. You just take any book you want out of the Bible, and you read that book, and you need to read that with the lens of seeing Jesus in it. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Now, when we talk about how to describe what it is that God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus, the Bible uses the word gospel to describe that. The gospel is the one word description on what it is that God has done for us in Jesus. Now, when you think about the gospel, it's really easy that you think clearly about that. Like, what is that? What is the gospel? And if you want to boil it down to its essence, the gospel is that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life in place of our very imperfect life. So he lived perfectly, us not so perfectly. He died on the cross for our sin. So that now all of our imperfection, all of our sin goes on to Jesus. His perfect record of righteousness is credited to us. On the third day, he rose from the dead, showing God's power over Satan's sin and death. So that all those who put their faith in Jesus will be reconciled to God forever. That's the gospel, right? That's good, good news. Now, I want you to think about that, though. It's actually news. Like, the gospel literally means good news. Now, I want to just tease out two implications of the gospel being good news. Here's the first one. That since the gospel is news, it has to be announced. It has to be preached. It has to be proclaimed. It has to be shared. Now, this is why preaching is such a big deal. This is why we take it so seriously around here. Because if we're going to get the gospel out, it's got to be announced. It's got to be proclaimed. It's got to be preached. And when I think about like my life and the various things that God has called me to do, one of the most weighty things in my life is what I do weekly here, this, this preaching thing on Sunday morning. And like James 3, every time I read James 3 verse 1, it makes me want to pee my pants. So J James 3 verse 1 says this, you need to be careful if you're going to be a teacher. You better, you better think about that. You know why? Because you're going to have a stricter judgment. Like God actually takes this preaching and teaching thing pretty seriously. Serious enough to say, hey, if you sign up for that job of opening up the Bible and preaching, you're also signing up for a stricter judgment. God's pretty serious about this thing. This whole preaching and teaching, opening up the Bible and, and doing this thing, God is really serious about the person doing that. Better be doing that rightly and carefully and well and better be pointing to Jesus. He's really serious about that. And, and that leads me to be so serious. When I think about I'm going to be held in stricter judgment because of that, it leads me to, to organize a lot of our life around preaching well. I, my week revolves around this. It's the reason that you'll very seldom catch Laura and I out on a Saturday night. It's because this thing has to be right. So God takes that really seriously because the gospel is news that has to be preached and announced. But let me jump to the other end of the spectrum. So one implication of the gospel being good news is it's got to be preached. But here's the other end of it. Is it's got to be heard. Like it's not just, the importance in the Bible is not just on the preacher preaching accurately and well. There's also equal emphasis on the people who hear that preaching to listen well. So it's not just about getting the preaching right, it's also about getting the hearing right. It's also about us hearing well, hearing correctly, hearing appropriately. And that is really the point of this passage. The point of the passage in Mark 4 that we're in this morning is not emphasizing the role of preaching. It's emphasizing the role of how you hear preaching. Are you hearing correctly? Are you hearing well? So, so this is the point that Jesus is getting at. In, in this chapter, uh, chapter 4, you're going to see the word here pop up 11 times. If you want maybe the central thrust of this parable, you'd get it in verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
See, Jesus is saying, in, in th- that passage there, in, in verse 9, he is saying that there is a way that you can hear where words just rattle in your ear. That, that's one way to hear. But there's another way for you to hear where those words actually sink down and reach into your heart. And that's the kind of hearing that we're going after. It's that sort of hearing from the heart. It's allowing these things to, to be pressed down deep into your soul, that sort of hearing. Maybe you can think of it this way. In this parable, Jesus is showing us that there is a way that you can hear that leads to your eternal death. And there is a way that you can hear that leads to life and life to the full. And you need to pay careful attention about the, the sort of hearing that you're doing. You need to be very careful about that. So, so this is the point of the parable. So we pick it up in verse 1. In verse 1. And it says this. And he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him. So this is at the height of his popularity. They, they gathered about him so that he got into a boat and set in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And just, just for your edification here, Mark 4 and Mark 13 are the only two extended teaching sections in the book of Mark. They're the only two like Jesus in front of people doing some major teaching. Everything else in Mark is like this scene to that scene. It's the doing of Jesus, not the teaching of Jesus. But here is one of those moments where Jesus slows down in Mark and teaches. Verse 2, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, verse 3, listen. That's the main idea, listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up. Since it had no depth of soil— And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So here's what's happening. Jesus here in, in those first eight verses, verses is using a familiar kind of farming picture. He's using the imagery of a sower, some seeds, and some soils. That this is the imagery that he's using. Now, I want you to put yourself in the crowd when he just gave you those first eight verses, a sower, seeds, and some soils. And then he says in verse nine, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, get it. Like figure it out. Now, if I'm in the crowd and that just happened, I don't know what Jesus is talking about. I mean, mean, is this like farming 101 class? What is going on here? I mean, I have a lot of compassion for the disciples in verse 10 when they look at him and they're like, okay, Jesus, I, I get the whole gardening metaphor that you just used. I get that, but I have no idea what you're really saying. You're gonna have to break that down one more level for us. This is what's happening in verse 10. The disciples come to him and say, can you, can you kind of give us the straight version of that? Like, we're going to have to have that in clear language. And so Jesus then unfolds it in clear language. And here's what we're about to see Jesus do. He's about to walk through th- these four soils, and he's saying this, that you've got to pay attention to how you're hearing. You need to make sure that you are hearing rightly and appropriately, that you're not hearing in such a way that leads to death, that you're hearing in such a way that leads to life, that you've got to pay attention. And let me tell you why I think this is so important for people like you and I in Bible Belt culture. Because their chances are, for a lot of you in the room, this is going to be like sermon number three million that you've heard in your life. And the problem with that is this that a lot of us have become expert sermon listeners. We can dissect the theology of it like nobody's business. Well, he should have said that, but he said this. Like, I wonder why he said that word. He probably should have said this word instead of that word. He's got this part all wrong. Like, we are expert sermon listeners, but most of us don't actually hear them. Are we seeing that? See, part of the tendency that we have in a room like this is to listen to a sermon and for it to be critiqued so well, 
for it to be heard on that level so well without it ever, ever reaching our heart, without it ever getting down into the depths of our soul where it actually starts to produce something different, where the truth of the gospel actually gets down deep enough where it begins to explode with life down deep in us. So, so I, I need you to hear that this morning. One of my concerns for us and what I hope Jesus will address from this room is it's not enough to listen on the surface to a, to a sermon, to open up the Bible and, and listen to it from the surface. That, that we've got to be people who really hear. Like Jesus is saying here that you can hear a sermon and not really hear it. That you can open up the Bible and read it without ever really reading it. That you can listen to it without ever really listening to it. So I want you to be aware of that as we, as we roll through this, as Jesus is explaining this parable. And here's what he's going to say. There's really four ways for you to hear the word of God or the gospel. There's really four ways when you open up your Bible that it's going to land on you. There's really four different ways that you're going to respond to a sermon. And I want to make sure this is personalized for you. You're going to be in one of these four ways. This isn't like for your neighbor or for your crazy coworker or for your son and daughter or your mom and dad. Uh, you're in this thing. Your face is going to be in this crowd somewhere. So part of what it means to listen well this morning is for you to figure out where you are in this story. So he says there's four, there's four ways to respond, four ways to hear the word of God. He starts to explain in verse 14. He says this, the sower. That's anyone announcing the good news of the gospel. The sower sows the word, the gospel. The sower sows the word, verse 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. This is one way to hear. Where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So he's using familiar imagery. Everyone in the crowd knows exactly what he's talking about here. They have seen the picture of a person sowing seed but, but this, th these seeds over here, they, they land on the path, not the good soil, they land on the path. And rather than, than breaking through the surface, they get held up. They, they can't sink deeply into the soil. They can't break their way through the hard outer crust of the soil. That they land on the rock hard path and, and, and they, they, they don't sink down. They don't sprout up. They don't grow to maturity. They don't produce fruit. Instead of like producing food for the farmer to eat, they are producing food for the birds of the air. They've all seen that. But for those that, that day who heard this, that had ears that could hear and eyes that could see, they knew Jesus was talking about something else. Namely, they knew he was talking about a hard hearted person. A person who responds to the gospel, the word of God, with a hard heart. So, so they knew that he was talking about not soils and seed, but gospel and human beings. They knew that they, he was talking about this picture of a person who hears the gospel, but it never breaks through their heart. That they hear the gospel, but they're resistant to it. That their heart is rock hard. Rather than the gospel finding soft soil where the seed can grow and, and sprout and produce fruit, it is snatched away and never comes to full maturity. So th this is the person God is talking about. This person who is hard-hearted. I, I like how one commentator says it. says they have a gospel deafness and they walk away. They, they are stiff-arming God. It, it's this sort of a person. Now, let me break this down, into, and we could talk probably about a lot of things here, but let me talk about two ways that this comes out, this sort of hard-heartedness. Here's the first way. I think this is maybe one picture of it. It's just a person who would hear things about Jesus, hear things about the gospel, and feel like this. That's dumb. Like, you'd have to be an idiot to believe that. I, this is like 1 Corinthians 1.18 in high definition. The cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. It's, it's dumb. That, that word foolishness is where we get our word moron. It's moronic. You would they would feel like this. You would have to be a moron to really think this Jesus stuff is real. So I think it comes across like that to some people. Like there's just, that, that is make-believe a myth. You would have to be an idiot to believe that. But let me tell you how I think it comes off mainly in a room like this. It's not that you'd have to be an idiot to believe it. 
it's that we just don't take time to actually consider it. We just don't take time to actually allow it to seep down into our soul where we're actually thinking about it. We're actually hearing it like down on that level. And so for this person, you just, you just kind of put yourself in the seat here. For, for this person, they, the Spirit of God is stirring some stuff up inside of them. For this person, like God is speaking to them like things are happening in their soul. But then we're dismissed, and in 10 minutes they find themselves eating fajitas, not thinking about what just happened. Never revisiting what just happened. See, it's that sort of just, man, there was something that was happening, but then I moved on and I've never thought about it since. It's interesting, in the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis kind of, of talks about a scene like this. And C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters, it's the story, and it's really interesting. C.S. Lewis is writing from the perspective of demons. So the, the kind of the primary plot of the, of, the, of the book goes around this demon. He's kind of a higher up demon named Screwtape. And he's training a kind of a lower level demon named Wormwood. And Screwtape, in part of his training, he is walking wor- uh, Wormwood through a scenario really early on of a guy. He, he is an atheistic guy in a British museum. That, that Screwtape had been working on for years to keep him away from what Screwtape calls the enemy, God, in the book. So he's been working for years to keep him away from God. And at one point in this museum, the, he notices all of a sudden that this atheistic man has this train of thought that would be leading him to the enemy, to God. He notices that he's got this train of thought working. Something is happening in his heart. Something is stirring deep down in him that would be taking him to God, to life, to, to joy, to Savior. Something is pushing him in that direction. And this is what he says he does immediately when that happens. And this is kind of his advice to Wormwood. You need to learn from this, Wormwood. This is what you do when a person has a thought that might lead them to God. He says this, I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. Now think about that. You've got a guy who the Spirit of God is working in in that moment, and here comes high-level demon screw tape. What's his strategy? Let me get them thinking about how hungry they are. He, He goes on that it was much too important to tackle at the end of a morning. Like this is way too big of an issue to tackle right now. You need to be refreshed before you go on to this one. The patient brightened up considerably. And by the time I had added, it'd be much better to come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind. He was already out the door. And listen to this last phrase. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. You know, it's interesting in, in this passage, in Mark 4, 15, who is it that, that takes the word of God out of the person's heart? Satan. So can, can, can we just allow this to sober us for a second? The moment you hear preaching, the moment you open up your Bible and read, you have just been welcomed into spiritual warfare. Like you actually have an enemy, his name is Satan, whose sole aim in your life is to keep you from from taking that, what what you just read, what you just heard, to keep you from from allowing that to take, taking you to God. To to put a blockade up between what you just heard and God. That, That is the sole aim of his life, is to keep that thought, that moment of conviction from taking you to life. It's his sole aim. So think about how this has played out for you in a moment like this. So in a moment like this, you have heard preaching and something begins to stir up in you. Something begins to to grab your soul and you begin to say stuff like, man, there's something to this. I I can't stay where I am any longer. This has got to change. Like I've got to run to Jesus right now. Like I need to think about, about about this truth. I've got to to marinate in this. And then all of a sudden you are dismissed and 10 minutes later you are eating lunch with someone talking about the cowboys and the weather. Never to return to that conviction that you just had. How many times has that been you? How many times has that been me? 
And can we just see what that is? That is spiritual warfare 101 happening on the turf of your heart. That that something happens and bam, the Spirit is speaking to you. And Satan's next move is to come and steal that seed away. Can I just give you this encouragement? If the Spirit of God is speaking to you on a Sunday morning like this one, rather than eating lunch, you would be well served to stay here for five, six, ten hours if that's what it takes. If that's what it takes, it would be worth it for you. To figure out what the implications of that are for your life, it would be worth you missing lunch. So Jesus is looking at the crowd and he's saying, this is how some people hear the word. They are resistant to it. They are stiff-arming God. There is a gospel deafness. They they hear, they had this moment of conviction and it is stolen from them in an instant. And I just wonder if that's how we hear the word. If that's us. If there are parts of our heart that we are resistant to God in right now. That we have barricaded and we have said, God, you can have anything but you cannot touch that. You can have whatever as long as you don't mess with this. I just wonder how many of, that, of us, that, that's where we are. And before we move on, I, I want to take a moment to actually pray for some of us in the room and for some of our friends that we know. The truth is to varying degrees, that's all of us in the room. And some of us right now, it is keeping us from faith in Jesus. Like for some of us right now, there is something working up in us that says, man, I need Jesus. God, save me. But we are so resistant to that. It's just landing on our heart and bouncing off. And I want to take a moment to pray for you. And there are others of us in the room, and this would be virtually every one of us, that we have sons and daughters, maybe a husband, maybe a wife, maybe a mom or a dad, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, that that's them. That their heart is just rock hard to the things of Jesus, to the things of the gospel. And so I want to encourage you just to take a second, and we're going to pray by name for a few people. I just want to invite you to bow your head. And for those people around your life right now, that this would be them. And maybe you're here this morning, and it's you. I want to give you a second to pray for your own heart in this. For those that you know fit this category of hearing the word. That their heart is as hard as cement. And God, I want to pray for my friends in the room that this is them this morning. This is them. Their heart is resistant towards you. It's hard towards you. The gospel, like even right now, is landing on their heart, but it's bouncing off. And God, I pray for for those brothers and sisters in the room and for those friends of ours who are not in the room. God, I pray that you would do whatever it takes in their life. Whatever it takes. That you would, in your grace, meet them there. And God, you would plow the soil of their heart to make it soft. Oh, God, I pray that in your grace, you might do that. That you would work in that sort of a way, deep in their soul you would lead them to Jesus. And there would be this moment in their life where they would throw up their hands and all out surrender and say, more than anything else in this world, I want him. It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. So soil number one is this hard heart. Heart number one, this way of responding to the word of God is just with this hard heart. We are resistant, stiff arming the things of God. But here's the second one. You see it in verse 16. Verse 16. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Okay, so this is the, the picture that everybody would be familiar with. The crowd knew this picture. Palestine was infamous for a layer of rock 
that ran right under the surface, just a couple of inches under the surface. So they knew stories. They had seen pictures of these seeds that had sprouted. They had grown. They looked incredibly promising, but they had no depth of soil. So they looked great, but when the sun came out, they wilted and died. They had all seen that picture play out. But for those who had eyes that could see and ears that could hear, they knew Jesus was talking about more the seeds and soil. They knew he was talking about ways that we were responding to God. And they knew that he was talking about the superficial heart, the shallow heart. That this is the guy who responds to Jesus, listen, with great joy. Like there is, there is excitement around it. There's passion around it. And that maybe even through tears, emotional. They have walked the aisle. They've said the prayer. They've done something in their past that they've had some sort of an emotional experience with Jesus. And then they turn instantly into the MVP of the church. I mean, it's not just that they have, they have, you know, sprouted and had this moment, but then they are growing like a weed. It's like somebody took miracle grow and threw it all over their life. They are doing it all. They are They are reading their Bible. They are memorizing. They are serving in the church. They are doing everything a Christian should be doing. And they are doing it well until the sun comes out. And then they die. Our our MVP Christian is here one day and it is gone the next. It looks so promising on the surface. I think about this. Of the four soils, this is the one that if if you were putting your money on what horse was going to win, this is your horse. This is the one that starts out so promising. There, There is no other soil that even has seeds coming out yet. And not only is this this seed out of the ground, it is sprouted, it is growing great. It's three feet tall overnight. It looks so promising. It is growing so fast. But here's the problem with this one, is it also dies so fast. This is the issue. It's here one day, it's gone tomorrow. It doesn't have the depth of roots to sustain it through life. They, They have not counted the cost. They might have had some sort of an emotional moment with Jesus, but they have not counted the cost of what a life with Jesus will require. See, here's the thing about a moment with Jesus. Like, and let's just call it an emotional, power-packed moment with Jesus. Guess what? It costs you nothing. It costs you nothing to have that sort of a, an emotional moment with Jesus. But a life with Jesus, guess what? It costs you everything. Everything. And they haven't counted the cost of that. See, one of the things that this parable is teaching us, and specifically this soil, it's showing us that there's a way to be excited about the kingdom of God without ever entering into the kingdom of God. Now think about that. That you can be the guy that is saying, you know, cheers for Jesus, and yet never have entered the kingdom of God. That you can like Jesus without ever being saved by Jesus. Maybe you can think of it this way. This parable, and specifically this soil, is showing us what genuine, true faith looks like and what it is. It's showing us a test of genuine faith. The true test of genuine faith is not how emotional and how fervent faith is for a moment. Now hear this. The true test of genuine faith is not how emotional and fervent faith is for a moment, but how enduring faith is over a lifetime. See, the Bible does not just stress how well you start. It also stresses how well you finish. And can I just tell you this, that it is a hundred times harder to finish well than it is to start well. A hundred times harder. Maybe you could think of it this way. Do you know when you're going to know that you have like real, authentic, genuine faith? You know when you're going to know that? When you're on your deathbed and you're breathing your last breath and you're still breathing a breath that says, I love Jesus. That's when. It's a faith that endures, that perseveres. And then he gives us the two things that kill these people, that kill this sort of shallow response to God. And he uses these words, tribulation and persecution. And chances are, if you have been around the church for very long, you have seen people, two two sets of people 
who have gone through the exact same thing, a very similar experience, but they have had two vastly different reactions to that. For, for one group of people, they go through that trial and that trouble and they come out more beautiful and more purified on the other end. And this other group of people go through the same trial and they are absolutely destroyed. Like it's the old adage that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And isn't that true? Haven't you seen that to be true? Now the question is, why is that? Why does it beautify some and at the same time kill others? Trouble and trials and tribulation. Why does it do that? And and let me try to answer the reason for, for, for the why there. Like why does that happen? Here's the reason. You have to be very careful that you are seeing clearly when you come to Christ. Because a lot of people, listen to this, they think they're coming to Christ and entering into his kingdom when all they're really doing is coming to Christ, but then they're demanding that he enter their kingdom. Now you think about what I just said there. Because this can be confusing for a lot of us that have had some sort of an emotional experience that we would point back to in our past. That that what really happened and what's easy to happen is we come to Christ not with our hands up saying, God, I am yours. But we come to Jesus with our hands in our pockets really saying this, Jesus, you're about to be mine. Like it's not me entering your kingdom. You're about to be a servant in my kingdom now. And and so we're not, listen to this, people like this, they're not looking to God to save them. They're just looking to God to bless them. They're not looking for God for redemption. They're just looking for God for relief. They're not coming to God saying, God, I am all yours. They are coming to God demanding that God supply what they want, namely the the, the building up of their kingdom. See, if, if you're a person or you know a person who in the midst of trials and trouble has turned their back on God, it is showing you that they did not come to God for God, but what they could get from God. And when they couldn't get that from God, they left God. See, if you leave God in the midst of trials and trouble, it is showing you, listen, it's showing you this, that what you're really worshiping is not God. What you're really worshiping is the thing you lost in the trial and trouble. Are we seeing that? If you leave God in the midst of trials and trouble, it is showing you that what you're really worshiping, what really matters to you, what is really God to you, what you're really worshiping is not God, but what you lost in the trial. So so Jesus is asking this question. Is that you? Is there depth to your roots? Are your roots sunk into Jesus or are your roots sunk into what Jesus can give you? When the sun comes out, are you nowhere to be found? Is that how you respond to the word? That's the question. Is this the way you respond to the gospel, to to the word of God? Here's the third soil. And this one gets to be really painful. Verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but... Now, let me tell you this. Everything after this but right here has the potential to absolutely shipwreck you spiritually. So they hear the word, but. Here's where the danger comes in. But, there's three phrases. I want to just encourage you to underline these. Those who hear the word, but. Here's the first phrase. The cares of the world. Phrase number one. But the cares of the world and. Here's the second phrase. The deceitfulness of riches. And here's the third phrase. The desires for other things. Enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Everyone in the crowd knew the picture. They had seen it before. They had seen seed that was scattered on the ground. And as the seed grew, so did the thorns and thistles. See, they they saw both of those growing, the thorns and thistles and the seed. And they saw the thorns and thistles absolutely choke the life out of the plant so that it was never fruitful. They'd all seen that. But for those who had eyes that could see and ears that could hear, they knew Jesus was talking about more than seeds and soils. That he's actually talking about a divided heart, an overcrowded heart. 
See, what Jesus is really talking about is the person that has mixed allegiances and way too many loyalties in their life. What he's really talking about is a human being that doesn't just love and respond to Jesus, but is loving and responding to a million other thorns and thistles. He's really talking about this heart that has all of these thorns and thistles growing that is choking out the word, a love for Jesus in their heart. Now, two quick words about thorns. Two quick words. Number one, thorns are native to the soil. So think about your yard. Has there ever been a moment in your yard where you went out and planted the seeds so that weeds would grow? No, but it looks like I did that in my yard. It looks like I had to have intentionally walked out and scattered weeds everywhere. But no, I didn't do that. They're just native to the soil. And guess what? When we're talking about these sort of thorns and thistles, those seeds are native to your heart. You don't have to plant them there. They are already there. So it's really not a question of do you have thorns in your life? It's right now, or the, the real question is, is right now, are those thorns absolutely choking the spiritual life out of you? So they are native to the soil of your heart. And here's the th- second thing, that thorns are competitors. They're not friends in your life. They are competitors to a love for Jesus in your life. Thorns and the good seed of the gospel, Jesus, they are both competing for the same nutrients in your heart, namely your loyalty and love and your allegiance. And the Bible is real clear that you can't have two masters. Um, I've laughed about this a couple of times. Um, when, When growing up for me, the first 18 years of my life, was dominated by sports. And uh, this is what I've laughed about, that I've told this before, that when I came out of the womb, it's literally like I went into spandex. And here's why. Wrestling was the thing that dominated the early days of my life. I had two older brothers that were, and by the way, we're not talking about like turnbuckle, flying off the top sort of wrestling, like legit wrestling, that that sort, right? And so, uh, so I had two older brothers that wrestled, and it was just kind of part of what our family did. In my junior year in, in high school, I just won a state championship, and now we're to the senior year in high school. And uh, this particular weekend, our team was going to a really bad tournament. Like the competition of the tournament was really, really bad. Like terrible with a capital T sort of bad competition. And so in that particular tournament, I wrestled up like two weight classes. So not my normal weight, wrestled up several other weights so some other guys in our team uh, could wrestle. And uh, me being an absolute idiot, I was taking a nap when I heard my name called over the loudspeaker that it was like time to go, ready to rumble moment. So I just, you know, ripped my warm-ups off, jumped out there, and here we go. And this guy was terrible. I mean, he was not, I mean, like I went into the spandex in the womb. This guy probably went into spandex at like 16, not so much at like 16 minutes old. And so we get out there, and within the first 10 seconds of the match, this guy that is not good at all throws me in a headlock. Now, I don't know what you picture when you hear the word headlock, but it's probably not too far from what you have in your mind right now. So I'm in a headlock. So I kind of scramble around there for a second, and I finally get off my back. But we're in this really awkward position to where I'm like face down, no longer like on my back, but he's still got his hands locked around my head and arm. And what the referee can't see is that I am literally being choked out. Like it is a serious, serious situation here. Now, normally if a referee saw that, he, he would, you know, uh, blow the whistle, stop the match, and we start over. But, but we were in such a position that he could not see it. And I never will forget afterwards, my coach said, well, why didn't you holler at him? And I'm like, I was choking That's why I didn't holler at him. You try getting choked and see if you can holler. And I'll never will forget this moment as I'm literally like having the mess choked out of me. I never will forget this moment of thinking, I may die right here. I mean, this may be it. Now, here's the truth for a lot of us in the room. The thorns of this world have us in a headlock this morning. And it is choking the mess out of us. Choking the spiritual vitality out of us. And listen, the sad thing is we don't even know it. We don't even know it. Like it's got its hands around our neck 
A love for Jesus is so distant and so faint that we can't even remember the time we actually had like a desire and affection for Jesus. We are being choked to death and we don't even know him. And and can we just have an honest conversation as a church family here? This third soil is the dominant soil of what would be in an American suburban church. It's you and I. It's you and I. It's not that we don't like Jesus. Like, see, the people in the third soil, they actually like Jesus. The problem with the people in the third soil is they like so many other things as much or more than Jesus. See, the problem with the third soil is, I mean, this life is so good to them. It's so comfortable. It's so nice for them that they've actually convinced themselves that this world is all there is. That this world is it, not the life to come. There's just too, too much to love in our heart. There's just mixed allegiances everywhere. It's we just love our stuff more than we love Jesus. We just love our homes and we love our cars and we love money and we love our jobs and we love our reputations and we love our approval and we love power and we love all these things just more than Jesus. It's just mixed allegiance. It's all these thorns that are choking the mess out of our spiritual vitality. And Jesus gets pretty personal here. He names the thorns. And why don't you just read these along here with me in verse 19. He names them. Here's what he calls them. The cares of this world. The cares of this world. That we have really, like, listen, this is not other people. This is you and me. That we've really been seduced into thinking that this is really all there is. I, I, I guarantee you, our lives give this away. If, if we were to track with a video camera my life and your life for a week, I'll guarantee you the dominant thing it would probably scream after a week of footage is this. This guy really does not believe in heaven and hell. This guy believes that this is all there is to life right here and right now. And I, I just wonder if that's you, if you've been seduced into thinking that, man, this is it. This is life with no recognition of what's to come, we have just been subtly seduced into all of our energy, all of our cares being centered on the fleeting few years that we have here and not the eternal life that's on the way. Can I, can I just remind you that you're gonna live here if you're, if you're I, I don't know, you might could call this lucky. I don't know if it is or not, but if you live to 90, I don't know, it's got blessings and curses to probably come along with it. If you live to 95, Can I just say that really pales in comparison to a million years that's that's coming? Can we just see that accurately? That these are a few short years. Everything is on the horizon for you. Everything is here. The cares of this world. And then he goes on. The deceitfulness of riches. It's interesting that 2,350 verses in the Bible deal with money and possessions. Far more than on prayer, on faith, far more than those things. 2,350. 15% of all the words Jesus said, money and possessions. Roughly half of the parables, money and possessions. Now, why is that? It's not because God wants your money. It's his anyway, right? It's his. It's all his. But maybe it's because he wants you free from the love of money. Maybe the reason God talks so much about money and possessions is he knows that it's going to be one of the primary competitors, ruthless competitors for the affection of your heart. See, here's the thing that money does. It offers these seductive little lies that say this. If you really want life, if you really want life and satisfaction, you know where that's found? It's not found in Jesus. It's found in me. If you really want security, you know where that's found? In me, money and possessions. See, this is the seductive lies that it it offers. I mean, they are alluring. They look so good. And the truth is, for most of us in the room, to varying degrees, we have all bought into that. We've all bought into that. And Jesus is saying here, listen, that is a thorn. When you start looking at money and possessions like that, when you start caring about them like that, that is a thorn that's going to choke out a love for me. And you see that word deceitfulness of riches? See, this is the ironic thing about greed and money sickness. Is it's so easy to see in other people, but it's virtually impossible to see in your own heart. It's virtually impossible for you to see how driven by money and the security and the promises that that it holds in front of you, how driven by those things you really are. 
And Jesus is saying, you better get eyes to see that because that thorn is choking you. He, he goes on one more. He says, the desire for other things. The desire for other things. Can I just give you this warning in your life? That for most of us in the room, what is going to shipwreck you spiritually is not some big, blatant, bad sin one day that you're going to commit. That's not going to be it. There's going to be it for some, but it's not going to be it for most of the people in this room. What's going to shipwreck most of the people's faith in this room is a million good things, listen, that you love way too much. What's going to shipwreck most of the people in this room is that you love a million good things. They're good. They're not bad things. They're good things. But you love them way, way, way too much. You're looking to them for way, way, way too much. It's the desires for other things. That when you just think about life, your affections don't naturally gravitate to Jesus. They naturally gravitate to a million other other things, like your hobby, like your retirement, like that new house that you want, like that new car that you want, like that new little trinket that you want, like that new thing you want for the garage, like that new thing you want for the backyard, like all of those little trinkets in your life. And can you look at verse 19, the last four words? Can I just make sure you're seeing with clarity the result of being choked out? Like what the end of that road is? Like where that's going to take you? If we allow these thorns to be in our life, what the end of that road is? Four words. And it proves unfruitful. Let me translate that. And when you look back over your life at the end of your life, you're going to look back and you're going to think this. You're going to see this. Man, I've accomplished all of these things and none of them matter. See, this is the translation. Unfruitful. I've done all of this stuff, but none of that stuff matters in the end. I've made all of that money. I've bought all of these things. I've done all of this stuff, and none of it matters in eternity. See, this is the end of the road for this person. For the guy that is being, or the lady that's being choked out by thorns, is they look at the end of their life, they look back over their life, and they realize, they come to their senses one day as they realize, I have missed my God given opportunity to make a mark on eternity. They're unfruitful, they've wasted it. Their few short, fleeting years have passed before them, and they have spent those few short, fleeting years, listen, on all the wrong things. That's the end of that road. Now, it's interesting. Let me take you back to that wrestling match. At the last second, I'm talking like I am milliseconds away from passing out in the middle of a wrestling match. At the last second, the, the referee blows the whistle and stops the match. When I got up, it looked like straight, something straight out of a horror movie. The top of my eyelids, bloodshot. All the vessels in my eyelids had, had burst. In both eyes, they were beet red. You know, both eyes, blood vessels had busted. It was a terrible scene, but can I tell you this? The referee stopped it and the whistle blew in just enough time for me to not die out there. And can I just tell you what I hope is happening this morning for a lot of us in the room? That the whistle in your heart will sound in just enough time for you not to be choked out, for your spiritual vitality to die, for your love for Jesus just to go away. And I hope this morning that God might meet you right there and blow the whistle for you. So is this you? Are you the overcrowded, the divided heart? And then he gives one more, and we'll end with this one. Verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. People knew the imagery. They had seen the plant, they'd seen the seeds that had found good soil, and rather than you know, rather than bouncing off, they sunk deeply into that soil. And rather than being scorched by the sun, they actually had roots deep enough and dependable enough to sustain them in that. And rather than thorns choking out the nourishment that it needs, the thorns were cut back and this, this, this plant grew to full maturity. It bore fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. They had seen that. But for those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, they knew Jesus was talking about more than soils and seeds. That he was talking about the good, soft soil of a human heart. Good soil, soft soil, sensitive soil. They knew he was talking about the person who rather than rejecting and resisting the word of God in their heart was receptive. They were humble. I mean, they were wide open to it. Rather than being scorched 
by trials and trouble, man, they had roots deep enough to, to endure those things. The, the root or the, the thorns of the cares of this world, the deceitfulness and riches and the desires for other things had been trimmed and cut back in their life. They knew they were talking about that person that actually bore good gospel fruit, that person. And they give three descriptors of it. Three descriptors of this soft heart, this good heart. It says that they hear. And see, that is different than words rattling in your ears. That is words reaching down into your heart. It's hearing like that, that they hear. Like deep down in their soul, they mold these things over. They think about them. It is perfectly right and good for you to come up to a pastor after he has preached and compliment a sermon that was meaningful to you. That is perfectly appropriate to do. But I, I want to just make clear that the most... The, the biggest and best way that you can compliment a sermon is to actually do the hard work of listening to it. To actually do the hard work of teasing out the implications of it for your life, your family, and your future. To doing the hard work of thinking about that. See, sermon listening or opening up your Bible, that is not a spectator sport. That is something that you have to be aggressively involved in. That you have to work really hard in thinking about, if this is true, what would that mean for our life? What should that mean? And that requires hard work. See, it's, it's that sort of hearing. Not just rattling around your brain, but seeping down into the deepest parts of your soul. It's hearing, and then it uses this word, and they accept it. If I were to define what acceptance means, it means that, that those sermons, that Bible reading actually leads you to Jesus where you're repenting of your sin. You're repenting. See, sermons are meant to take you to Jesus. That's where, that's where they're meant to go. That's the natural progression of them. For you to see who you are, who you're not in light of God's word. For you to turn from your idolatry and all the things you're looking to for, for, for your hope and for your happiness and to turn from those things and back to Jesus. That's what repentance is. Can I just ask you the question, when's the last time you've really repented of something? When's the last time that you're turning from your idols and to Jesus? See, this is what it means to accept the word, that we're allowing it to drive us to Jesus where we're repenting. And then it says that they bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Rather than at the end of their life, them looking back over their life saying, I've wasted it, accomplished all of these things, and none of them matter for eternity. This person says this, look at what by the grace of God, God has done in and through my life. I can't believe it. 30 fold, 60 fold, 100 fold that I get to enjoy, not just in this life, but for all eternity. That's the good soil. And can I just say what I pray for us as a church is that we are responding to God like that. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.